Hello, this is Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 182, recorded on Monday, the 19th of June, 2017, at about 10 minutes past 12 in the morning. So, hello again, and yes, I have managed to miss my Sunday deadline as usual, but at least I am actually closer to Sunday for a change, which is good. And today, as promised, we have a whole lot of Doctor Who. Yes, there's quite a bit of catching up to do. Quite a bit of new Who and my old Who vintage Doctor Who viewing marathon. There are several episodes I haven't talked about yet from new Who. I don't know how I managed to miss talking about them. So let's start with The Pyramid at the End of the World when those creepy zombie monks from the week before are threatening humanity and the president, who is, in fact, the doctor in times of emergency, if you remember how that happened. And it does make you think that this guy has more titles than Idi Amin. Switches from his usual pacifism to advising direct military action. All goes pear-shaped, unfortunately, thanks to Bill's compassion. So blast your human frailty, Bill. The next week in The Lie of the Land, the adventure continues, and this is the final part of the Monks trilogy, where the Monks having taken over the world, Bill attempts to rescue the Doctor from the monks, because the monks see the Doctor as their only possible threat. But when she does get to the Doctor, it appears that he is in cahoots with the monks. But it's all a ruse. And honestly, they went about it in a really laborious manner, and I got a bit tired of waiting for the Doctor to turn back into the good guy. But when he does, the monks are finally vanquished. And when that happens, so does all memory of the incident by the humans of Earth. Except for the Doctor, Bill and Nardole. And that's how it ends. That's how the adventure with the monks ends. I think it was a three-parter. The next episode is entitled Empress of Mars, and that was shown on Saturday night. It was a nice redressing of imperial colonial ambition in the guise of sci-fi. And the Empress, you know what, she's definitely no Deja Thoris either. I'm glad that... Stephen Moffat played it that way because the sight of those Victorian-era red jackets, for me, as a descendant of Indians from India, unsurprisingly never fills me with any kind of nostalgia. And you might just feel the same way if you are American or African. Obviously, a lot of steampunk art direction in this episode, which I quite liked, and good that the ranks of the Redcoats, even though I didn't really like them that much, 
had a black face there too. As usual, I'm totally on board with the politics of New Who. What does turn me off, however, is that there is sometimes an overly wordy dialogue that bores me a little. More action, please. More show, rather than tell. And now we come to the most recent episode of Series 10, Eaters of Light. This is a historical episode. Don't get so many of those in New Who. And this time it's another theory on the disappearance of the Roman 9th Legion. The twist is that the only survivors on both sides, both Roman and Scottish, are a bunch of teenagers. And this week, Moffat is doing his own spin on an Arthurian-slash-Outlander pastiche. Outlander, the Beowulf sci-fi movie from 2008, with Jim Caviezel, not that current historical romance TV show. The angler, fish, slash, dragon, combo, monster, creature design even looks ripped off from the movie. The Doctor is the Merlin-esque stranger helping out the two sides, dealing with a problem with dragons, well, at least interdimensional photon predators. I actually missed the first 15 minutes because the BBC can't seem to settle on a regular time for the show. Come on, Beeb. They moved the show to 6.45 this Saturday, and of course I was waiting for 7 o'clock and I completely messed it up. I think sometimes the show is even later as well, so it's a bit unpredictable unless you go into your... TV setup and program it to start at the right time, and then even if you do that, you need to be there when it starts, and I wasn't. Finally, I have one last thing to say, because it is fairly obvious that Missy will regenerate and she will go evil, as she inevitably will, as the master, and when that happens, please let Nardole be the first to be horribly murdered. And that is it for the catch-up of New Who this week. Next, I'm going to talk about my continuing and endless and infinite Doctor Who vintage viewing marathon, which I have mixed feelings about. I am enjoying it, but sometimes if the particular adventure or serial is a little long-winded and frankly a little boring, then it's not so enjoyable, especially with a spectre of about a million shows left to watch during this marathon. But luckily, today wasn't the case, and I finished watching Doctor Who and the Silurians from 1970. This is the second adventure starring John Pertwee, and you know something? Watching these John Pertwee episodes is doing something weird to me. I'm really starting to rediscover my liking for the dandy, suave, eccentric Time Lord. I didn't think I would, but it so happens that I do. I always thought that 
Tom Baker was my favourite Doctor. I think he still is, but I am developing a growing appreciation for the other actors who played the Doctor. Anyway, back to the adventure itself. This second adventure is a seven-parter, and it is in colour. I'm not sure whether it's in film or not, but it doesn't look as cinematic as last week, so I am guessing videotape. The episode really starts with the Doctor repairing his car, also known as Bessie, which is a ridiculously old-fashioned, even for 1970, rickety, turn-of-the-century type jalopy. A bit chitty-chitty-bang-bang, that kind of car. Anyway, he takes her out for an inaugural spin at the Brigadier's insistence to a lab which is experimenting with power generation using a cyclotron. No, I'm not going to explain that here. They do mention what it is, but for a more interesting and just as improbable explanation, I advise you to read my horror story, Glassy, which is available on Kindle, if you want to know about what a cyclotron thingy does. Anyway, when they get to the lab, it turns out that the staff are stressed and some are being attacked in the caves by some kind of dinosaur-like creature. Silurians! This is their first appearance, and they look kind of great. Although, before the Silurians, we actually see some kind of velociraptor-type creature which the Silurians employ as their henchmen. Henchmen. Hench dogs, I suppose. Guard dogs. The thing about the Silurians is that they are played by actors in rubber suits, and they definitely look more interesting and sympathetic than the new Who humanoid Silurians, who are, in my opinion, a little boring because they look a little too like us. So that's the situation at the lab. When Unit and the Doctor arrive, we meet a paranoid Major who is in charge of on-site security at the lab and who believes that the problems are internal. Although paranoid as he is, it turns out he's completely right and one of the scientists is working for the Silurians in exchange for advanced scientific knowledge. He's obviously after a Nobel Prize. When the conflict starts to turn into an all-out scrap, the Doctor tries to broker a peace between the two warlike species, ours, humanity, of course, and the Silurians. Finding an ally in the leader of the Silurians helps, but unfortunately, the more warmongering twits on both sides almost make the Doctor's efforts fall apart. The humans with manpower and bombs, and the Silurians with bacteriological warfare. 
the results of this warfare are quite realistic, horrific and fairly frightening for a children's program. There are scenes of Londoners dropping from the disease and sure, it's a kid's show, but honestly, I think it's good to see that children are not being talked down to. Eventually, a cure for the plague is developed by the Doctor. There's the usual end-of-show scuffle as well, when the Silurians take over the lab and force the Doctor to power up the system and cook the surface of the Earth to wipe out humanity, making it only suitable for the Silurians. Of course, the Doctor fools them into overpowering their doomsday weapon, and the Silurians retreat to their caves. The Doctor, confident of negotiating a later peace settlement with the Silurians, heads back to Unit HQ, only to find that Lethbridge Stewart, the Brigadier, has sealed the caves and possibly committed genocide. And that's where it ends. Not really on a good note for humanity. We're a bunch of stinkers when you think about it. A couple of things I have to say. Liz Shaw, who is the Doctor's companion, much to her completely justified protestations, has to put up with a more secretarial role, which I think totally sucks. The script however, now reflects greater tension between equal rights and the old, traditional, patriarchal-dominated society. Her character is so forthright, hardly that of a pixie girl, and her job as a scientist make it impossible not to sympathise with her diminished importance. Liz Shaw's definitely a different kind of companion. More of the Sarah Jane slash Leela type than a shrinking wallflower. I do hope that they develop her character further during Pertwee's residency. So, yeah, down with the patriarchy. Joking aside, it's good to see some slight tweak of attitudes, and it does make me appreciate New Who all the more, and makes me realise how much sci-fi has been instrumental in the formation of my own politics. For the better, I might add. I'm sure that Donald Trump probably isn't a fan of Doctor Who, or maybe he is and just doesn't get it. Oh, and another thing. In this adventure, we have a young Paul Darrow, who you may remember played Kerr Avon in Blake 7. Here he plays a unit captain called Hawkins. He looks and sounds like Avon too, so that's quite interesting. He obviously made a mark with his performance in Doctor Who, and maybe that stood him in good stead later on. And amazingly, that's about it for the show. 
As usual, I would ask you to get in touch if you like the show. You can email me by going to roymartha, R-O-Y-M-A-T-H-U-R dot wordpress dot com and click on the contact link. There you'll find an email form where you can get in touch with me. You can also get in touch with me really easily on Twitter. I am at roymartha, at R-O-Y-M-A-T-H-U-R. The hashtag for the show is hashtag Roy's Rocket Radio. I must confess, I do not follow anyone on Twitter. It's not that I'm being particularly elitist, it's just that I'm a bit reluctant to use social media because it's such a humongous waste of time, and in any case, I tweet far too much. But, on the other hand, unlike a lot of other people with Twitter accounts, I do like to talk to people on Twitter. So, while I might not follow you, I'm absolutely happy to communicate with you using the Twitter platform. If you like the show, tell someone about Roy's Rocket Radio. I would ask you to also please review in iTunes. If you don't mind, that really does help. And if you want to hire me as a writer, go to my business website, which is simply roymartha.com and see what I can do for you. And that's it for tonight. This was Roy's Rocket Radio episode 182, recorded on Monday, the 19th of June, 2017. And the time at the end of the show is 39 minutes past midnight and 29 seconds. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Bye!